0: Hi, I'm Jade A. Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency, radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to
1: places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication about... Good afternoon, Lunch Hour listeners. This is Jessa Nicholson-Getz. I am your substitute host for A Public Affair, the lunchtime current event talk show here on WART 899-FM. I'm joined today by colleague, business partner, and friend, Michael Cohen, not the one that's always in the news, but an excellent attorney nonetheless. Uh, We're here just kind of chatting about 2023 Roundup, uh, different legal things that have caught our attention. I think Wild Stories, there's been a lot of what I would describe as creative legal arguments made in uh, politics and current events as of late. And so I was going to just raised some of the ones that tickled my imagination and thought we'd go through. So happy day after Christmas. This is a listener call-in show. So if anyone has a topic that they'd like to discuss, 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can call us and we can talk about law, politics, current events, or anything else you'd like to chat about. So introduce yourself, Mike. What's going on?
2: Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to participate in this. As you know, I'm a lawyer in Eau Claire. Um, We we do the same things together. So we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about this afternoon.
1: (laughs) I love it when I'm in charge. So here, these are going to be mine. And I know you and I have had some conversations off the air about this. Let's start with legal arguments that I never thought that we'd see advanced in very high profile cases in this country. So I'll start with President Trump has alleged that it is a violation of double jeopardy for him to stand trial with regard to the allegations surrounding the insurrection. His argument primarily is he was impeached and acquitted in the Senate for similar or identical behavior. So that should be done. Mike, is that your experience with double jeopardy? Um, no, that's,
2: that's not my experience of double jeopardy. It's also not my interpretation of what the constitutional provision about double jeopardy says. Why Um, do you say that? That just seems shocking. You know, it's interesting, uh, again, um, politics aside, it is, as you've alleged, as you've alluded to, interesting, some of the things that are in our news today, what people say, um, and they say them with this idea that what they say is going to be believed simply because um, by whom they are spoken, Um, I think that is some of what we're hearing and seeing with uh, some of the arguments that are being put forth Um, by a number of defendants surrounding, for example, the January 6th issue um, in 2020, not just um, former President Trump, but Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and some others, um, and I, I I personally don't listen to a lot of it anymore um, simply because I can't figure out how I could explain to somebody who doesn't know what they're, what we're talking about or they don't have the same experiences on a daily basis that we do how I would go about explaining things to them because Sometimes, as you know, the answer simply is, well, what you are saying is not what the law is. <laughs> Correct. And sometimes it's difficult for people to grasp that idea when they don't understand that, that bigger picture of, well, what is the law? Where does it come from? How was it originated? And that becomes a much bigger discussion. Um, but as you know, Jess, a double jeopardy as has been defined over the years by the courts, is actually a relatively narrowly defined protection, which is case in fact specific and it talks about issues within a court of law.
1: Correct. Not what it, not not which occurs in some other non court forum. And the issue is that number one, the constitutional provisions that discuss impeachment actually make explicit reference to the idea that impeachment does not bar a criminal prosecution, uh, regardless of if there's an acquittal on the impeachment in the Senate or a conviction on the impeachment in the Senate. The plain text of the Constitution says that it is a separate proceeding. And uh, number two, the Charges that were filed by Jack Smith and the team of prosecutors in the Washington, D.C. case don't directly mirror the articles of impeachment and, in fact, encompass federal statutes that were neither cited to nor referenced in the impeachment proceedings. So there's really not a lot for them to stand on on that, but we are also exploring the idea in terms of wild legal filings that presidents have absolute immunity to their behavior while in office, whether it be uh, criminal or civil or anything at all, and that that immunity can be raised at any time, even after they've left office, because that's one that uh, the Department of Justice recently asked the Supreme Court to expedite hearing on, which I would just say if I thought that I was being unjustly and illegally prosecuted because I had absolute immunity, I would be in quite a hurry to have the highest court in the country announce that so that I could get back to my day and not worry about, you know, the inconvenient things like massive legal fees to prepare for a month's long trial that could result in my incarceration. I'd rather we just clear that up. But uh, Mr. Trump has said, no, don't rush on hearing that. I'd prefer you don't. And so I guess we're not getting that rush. Thoughts? <laughs> well, uh,
2: you know, as you know, Jessa, as we've talked about, we as citizens have, and as lawyers, and as criminal defense lawyers, we have so many thoughts that sometimes it's overload the number of thoughts that we have because of these topics. Um, as I briefly stated, and as you very eloquently in detail pointed out as it relates to Mr. Trump's first argument right the law says that he can't raise the arguments and there's a whole bunch of reasons why and he seems to ignore those as does his lawyer when they file these things which again leads to this idea of how are they even being filed right I mean you wonder who are the lawyers that are filing these pleadings when when they when they are clearly filing pleadings which have no legal basis,
1: well, there do seem to be a series of bar cards on fire left in the wake of Trump representation. If we take a look at those who have represented him in the past and what their status as uh, gainfully employed lawyers with good standing, <laughs> and you could...
2: would wonder why some other lawyers don't see that as warning signs and they continue to pursue these things. um. As you know, these other issues that you mentioned, again, it's sometimes you just I am left dumbfounded not only by the arguments that themselves that are made, but I'm more I spend more time thinking about how are the lawyers that are raising these arguments justifying the arguments Um, from a political perspective, again, not to be the conspiracy theorist. Uh, I become concerned when, as you point out, the prosecution asks for an answer to move this case along, the Trump side says slow it down, and miraculously it gets slowed down, Um, where I, I would hazard a suspicion that if it wasn't Trump asking for it to be slowed down, but rather for it to be expedited, it probably would have been expedited.
1: Well, let me um, and, let, let me ask you this. You've been a criminal lawyer for 30 years. Have you ever had a client post something on social media suggesting that a witness against him should be executed and have that not affect his pretrial release? Uh, no, but I've never.
2: had. I can say that in almost 34 years, I've never had anybody make a statement like that at all about having someone executed. And um, in fact, as you know, right, if you because you've handled threat cases like I have you know, our clients don't even actually sometimes make threats, Right. yet they're prosecuted for threats, right? Um, Mr. Trump goes out and says things which I think the ordinary reasonable person would see as a threat, and yet there are no ramifications for that.
1: It's kind of a fascinating and look, we're on Wart 89.9 FM, a Madison public radio uh, lunch hour discussion of public affairs. So I, I let my politics show here. Not everyone has to. But I I will tell you this as a criminal defense attorney who is tasked with monitoring if my clients are following the conditions of their bail and responding to accusations that they aren't. It it has been a struggling year for me to hear people pontificate that we have a two tier justice system. When I watch from my perspective, somebody violate the conditions of his pretrial release on a near hourly basis on social media, and there's been no repercussion. And yet, supposedly, that's a person who is in the bad tier of our two-tier justice system, right? To me, I'm like, yeah, it does appear that there's a two-tier justice system here. And it does appear that some people are being treated very differently. It's just, my dude, you're the one benefiting from that. You're not actually the clients that my public defender friends see on a daily basis who, if they drive down a street and make no contact with somebody, but it was a street they were barred from being on, they're going to get picked up and their bail's going to be revoked. Well, for me, I think of You know, I, I think back
2: to law school and you know your criminal procedure, criminal justice classes, where when you come into your first year of law school, they give you all these cases and they say go read these things, and you realize that you're reading cases from the 1700s and 1800s and early 1900s, and the purpose of that is to show you the historical progression of case law and how the law develops over time. But what you realize is that there has always been a two-tiered criminal justice system in this country. And in many occasions or on many occasions, that two-tiered system is derived from who has more money than someone else. It comes from who is politically or business-wise connected to something that they want. Um, And I think what's unfortunate is that... um, we in society are sometimes unwilling to acknowledge this or unwilling to discuss it or pretend that it doesn't exist. But the fact of the matter is, is that, and you can use, for example, the. um, when I was in law school, I took Indian law. And so you studied the, we studied the progression of, you know, the history of the treatment of the Native Americans and how that was all, it's all politically determined. What's going on today, I suspect, will be studied 50 or 100 years from now and will be seen as another example of how politics, unfortunately, drives much of what we see in the law. The answer to why we are not seeing ramifications uh, or further more intense actions, for example, in my opinion, regarding uh, former President Trump, is because there is this um, tightrope of a walk being done because people are aware that depending on how things go, it could affect the election, right? We we want to make sure that we are trying to get an election through one way or the other that is seemingly fair, that doesn't have the same problems as we had in 2020. We know that Trump is popular on social media with his base. Um, We know that there are perceptions of um, other politicians, both for and against and, and so, unfortunately, the reality is is that um, we do have a tier t- two tiered system um, in in our legal system. Um, I would argue that sometimes it's more than
1: two. Yeah, um, I, I I would agree with you there, and I do think that there's a at least this is my perception because you know you watch some of the behaviors, and there are so many different Trump cases going on right now that it's hard to keep them separate, but. You know, I mean, the, the comments on social media about this poor judge's law clerk in this New York trial, I mean, we appear in front of judges every day. I know law clerks in every courtroom in the state, basically, and I, I can tell you, I don't know a single judge who wouldn't absolutely lose his or her mind if someone were attacking their law clerk like that. And I think that part of it is probably the perception that there are people out there that would take any restriction on Mr. Trump's rights or freedom as a call to violence almost. I think that there's a concern given the amount of threats that are made when court actions are taken and the stuff that happened with the gag orders and the response was overwhelming that the prosecutor's offices and the judiciary was receiving death threats. Uh, I understand, you know, that's not supposed to affect what justice is, right? It's not supposed to change what the standard for pretrial behavior is. But I I also can understand that as a practical matter, keeping in mind that there might be a massive public violent reaction to a court action has got to be a lot of pressure for any judge to have to carry. Sure, and and you you see that... um not
2: only with the judge in new york for example but now with the judges in colorado
1: oh Uh, yeah and that's hot off the presses this colorado supreme court decision what do you think about that um well my own
2: personal opinion is is i'm 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 pleased that the court again it was a 4-3 decision right so which is interesting uh when you listen to all the other banter about their judges out there. It was still a 4-3 decision. Um, but be that as it may, um, my own personal opinion is is that if um, there was a decision that insurrection occurred, then I believe that the decision is right. I don't know the facts in detail that were actually argued to the Colorado court, so it's hard to make a decision or again, an opinion about their decision within the legal framework that they actually had to decide the case. But if... The facts were presented to the lower court in a way that there was a finding of insurrection. And that is the and the, the only question for this Colorado Supreme Court was if The only question that was posited was if there was a finding of insurrection, does that remove him from the ballot? I believe they made the, the right decision based on that fact. The interesting question is that which is being put out there, which is. Does a state court have the right to make that decision on a federal election? And of course, that becomes the whole issue of the Fourteenth Amendment and states' rights. And we're not saying we're not. We are Colorado. We're not saying what, we're not. This is not to be necessarily bound to all other forty-nine states. But in our state, we have made this decision. If it's proper that they have the right to do that. They have the right to do it. And the interesting question will be what happens in other states that are soon to be addressing the same question.
1: I agree with that. And we're here at Wart 899-FM, A Public Affair. I'm Jessica Nicholson Getz. We're chatting with Attorney Michael Cohen. You can call in and talk to us about current events at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can tweet at us at Wart Talk, W-O-R-T-T-A-L-K, or visit us on Facebook, Facebook facebook.com slash Wart Talk. Uh, feel free to shout out any ideas, any opinions. Give us a call. Let's chat about it. In terms of the Colorado thing, and that made me realize we've had a very important Wisconsin Supreme Court decision come down in the past few days, which I'd like to talk about next if you're up for it. But, (laughs) uh, you know, two things immediately come to mind with the Colorado thing. Number 1, my understanding of the law is that state law they absolutely are allowed to do that. From everything I've read that that is the exact function of what they're supposed to do. And somebody can educate me on that if my federalist uh my my federalist position is outdated here, but I it's my understanding they can. I wonder if this is the sort of thing there wasn't a ton of transparency in that process. You know, it's not like there were public hearings That people were able to follow. And so I'm a little uncomfortable with something that has such a national importance being decreed by a judiciary uh, because it feels like people are having something, a choice taken away from them that they think they're entitled to have. Does that make sense? Well, I I think...
2: (laughs) I think a couple of things, and that is, that's what I said. You know, I don't know the history of everything that occurred in the Colorado case, and that's because, A, I'm not a Colorado resident, and I'm not a Colorado attorney, so I don't pay attention to those issues necessarily on a state basis. I believe that it is a state issue. I believe that the state of Colorado has the right to make it the laws for its state. I agree with – let me say it this way i don't know how much transparency there was or was not within colorado right that's a um, point. And, 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 and it's hard to know what is taken out of the out of out of a state's own media into the national uh dialogue because as we know when you watch national um local uh, lo- national news national broadcasts unfortunately we are a soundbite society and we're only picking out the stuff that sounds good that's going to sell our advertisers and things like that and so it's hard to know what was or was not actually the basis for the colorado ruling having said that if in fact as has been reported a fact finder at some level made the decision had had a determination that insurrection within that definition under the law occurred Then I do believe that the state of Colorado has the right under the 14th Amendment to make the law for its state about how they're going to apply that finding to their ballots. and it began.
1: It would have been good for somebody who I don't know is a lawyer for a living and is given the platform of guest hosting a radio show could have perhaps looked up. Can people just write the guy's name in on the ballot in Colorado if they don't print it officially? That is an unanswered question for me. I probably could have taken the five minutes to find that out before we got on air today. But as a I pra- think the answer is yes. Yeah. So as a practical matter, I mean, you can't stop someone from voting for whomever they desire to vote for, assuming they can legally vote, right? so the (laughs) only the only
2: my understanding of the ruling is that essentially the colorado supreme court has said that former president trump whose name cannot appear printed on the official colorado ballot for the republican primary right that essentially is that's that's what it's limited to as i understand it i don't believe that the ruling goes beyond the primary i may no that's that's that's
1: my understanding as well and to me I think that, you know, like, look, my nearly three-year-old daughter, when she drops something and spills it, she goes, oh, a consequence, uh, because she's learning about cause and effect, okay? And so from, like, sort of a mothering perspective, I look at that decision and think, oh, a consequence. I'm happy to see that. Uh, Now, you know, is it, does it actually do anything? I'm not sure that it does because I think people have the right to vote for whoever they want. And I think there's plenty of money to spend educating voters on the ability to write a name in on the ballot, if that's something people end up having to do. And
2: My suspicion is, is that if you did the investigation, you would probably find, and again, I haven't, so I don't know, but I'm surmising that there is probably already a pretty significant in-state of Colorado push to illuminate that information to the general public. So for those that wish to vote for former President Trump, they're going to be able to do so if they just do it the right way. So it's not going to surprise me uh, in any way to find out that Trump media and his his you know, money is pushing that message out through whatever source they can um, to get that word out that about the concept of a write-in um and you know what they have the right to do that first amendment gives them the freedom of speech they have the right to educate the public uh or their or their voters or their base uh, as they wish as long as they do it in a organized peaceful manner i don't have a problem with that idea
1: no i i agree with that speaking of having voting rights Wisconsin, uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court had a narrow, a a divided decision uh, recently that is going to, in my view at least, give Wisconsin citizens quite a bit of voting rights back in terms of the political power our individual opinions will carry. And I'm, of course, talking about the what I'm going to refer to as the Fair Maps decision that was authored by Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Karofsky last week. So. I mean, Interesting.
2: It's in it, again going back to the you know using that as a reference. Just quickly back, you know, it's mm-hmm. another four-three decision, right? Right, right. which um, I think we have to be honest, intellectually so, and say, did the last election, which changed the majority vote in the Supreme Court, have a have a play in this answer? Obviously, yes. Yes, <laughs> which is again this this we have become a, a much more openly blatant country where we have our politics influencing our our, our law or, or vice versa this is another example i tend to personally agree with the decision from a political standpoint because i do believe that um it is my opinion and many people will disagree i suspect but i believe that in wisconsin the um majority has lost the voice of the power of being the majority, given the way that things have been um, gerrymandered over the years. The fact that the, the the minority population in this state, which we know to be the case, when you look at the voter rolls, um, our population is majority Democratic, uh, Democrat, minority Republican. It, 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 we, we, that's our state population as a general rule. And so I, I am of the opinion that 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 politics should mirror the voice of the majority of the people and the minority should have significant influence. But at the end of the day, the majority should still win. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way we handle life and all sorts of things. Right. So I don't see a difference. Um, I'm, it'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court of the United States does with the case. It's, you know, as you know, as well as I do, they have taken some of these cases. They have not taken others. They have ruled in both directions, depending on um, the state and the issue, um, so it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Do they take the Wisconsin case or do they not? Again, the question is: I don't know exactly how the question was framed as to whether it's a national issue for them or whether it's going to stay state state case uh, issue. Because I don't know how the frame the question was actually framed. Um, I hope that they stay out of it. Because I, I do tend to be personally um, a state's rights individual. That That's my own personal belief in many things. I believe that we as citizens have the, we don't like the law in the state of Wisconsin, we can move to the state of Minnesota. Right. Right. I mean, we, we have this, uh, this power to go places that mirror our philosophies. And I think that that's a beauty that the United States has. Um, and so I, I think that the federal government should stay out of it. I don't know that they will. Um, I do think that it's a, f- a right decision because it, it is going to require a true effort for a balanced and fair maps drawing. That's really all I ask for as a citizen is that, that the, the, when, when people say our vote matters, well, we all get a vote, that's true, but if you're put in a pot where your vote is just if everybody if if all of the votes are put in one place, then you're not really getting that vote right
1: well, and when so, you yeah like and when you look at recent history in Wisconsin, right, and I'm gonna take an issue that is near and dear to my heart, but there are others. Every poll that anyone has seen about Wisconsin voters is that this is a state that is pro-choice. Okay, and we have this conflicting statute issue with the 1849 total abortion ban versus the Post-Roe statute that Judge Diane Schlipper here in Dane County struck down the 1849 ban. We're waiting for that to go up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. I'm sure that's coming. We all know it's coming. But as of right now, we're back to having some basic health care rights for women in this state, which was quite a haul because despite... The overwhelming data showing that no one wanted that. Republicans have a supermajority in our legislature, and unlike many states, uh, we—you know—we just saw it in Ohio. We saw a Kansas vote. We've seen tons of them. Everybody, every state nationwide, has been rejecting radical abortion anti-choice legislation when the voters get to it. We couldn't get abortion on the ballot for our last election because the Republican Party was able to block. That sort of thing. We can't get the question of legalization of marijuana on the ballot here, even though, I mean, in Janesville, Wisconsin, 70 percent of voters are pro-legalization. Janesville is not Madison. This is not some, you, you, you know, I mean, the people in Milton and Beloit aren't these Hot smoking liberals that are hanging out on the uw campus rooting for this i mean this is portage wisconsin where they still charge second and subsequent marijuana possessions as felonies and we're taking away serious rights uh, we you know had over 60 percent in favor of that can't get it on the ballot uh we've tried with local referendums and i'm with you to me I can accept losing, right? Like, I'm an anti-death penalty person because of the job that I do. It would break my heart. I, I couldn't do the job that I do and watch my clients be executed. And and I have immense respect for anyone that can and who does that extraordinarily challenging job, death penalty defense. I, I'm against it personally for lots of reasons. I understand that I'm in the minority. I wish I lived in a country that didn't have a death penalty. I'm glad I live in a state that doesn't have a death penalty. But... If the votes changed, my job would have to change, too. And I'd have to do that work if Wisconsin made it legal. And that, to me, is what democracy looks like, is it's not that I have a problem with losing, I, I, although I do. I, you know, I have a problem with not being counted. And the way that the maps have been here in Wisconsin, I mean, it's a democracy desert, and I've seen it called that on every major news media outlet nationwide. Well, no, oh, sure.
2: Wisconsin, yeah, we, we but, have a which is really sad. Yes. But we have a horrific national reputation for our state politics. If you read any read any any article, any story written uh, that discusses politics in some way and discusses Wisconsin, we are well known as being in my words, not others, an unfair political state.
1: Well, and it's um, it's kind of fascinating to me because of course, as you mentioned, the and I'm not gonna say her last name because I'll butcher it, I'll use her campaign slogan and talk about Judge Janet, who was our most recent elected Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. I mean, there was real talk of basically them starting a you know, starting an impeachment proceeding that they had no intention of following through on just to prevent her from voting. And right. Somehow, someone managed to publicly shame our legislature into not doing that. I still don't know what happened that shame reached those. And it looks like we've got a couple of callers right now. I've got Sarah on line one who's got a question about uh, the justice system and sentencing.
3: Hello. I, so far, I agree with the the things you have brought up. I've been listening to since the beginning of the program. And well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> but one of my main concerns, and has it's a continuing one, is the sentencing of juvenile offenders to life in prison without, uh, maybe this is a question, without uh, any hope of parole or probation or getting out at all. Am I correct in saying
1: that? i'm going to defer to mike on that because i know he's got an active Thank case you. that speaks to that um
2: in so in wisconsin um th- that is actually not the law meaning that um we do not have in this state life without parole as a day de- as a, as 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 the ultimate and and end all so for example and, and the only Crimes that we have are what we call class A felonies. There is, that is a life sentence. And in that case, the judge can um, impose life without the possibility of release. Um, However, to do so in a juvenile case for someone under the uh, age of uh, 18 would be unconstitutional as the law is currently situated from United States Supreme Court law. Now, there are, there's actually, I believe I just read, there's something pending now to address that uh, in Wisconsin, but I don't know the details. But as a general rule in Wisconsin, if a juvenile under the age of 18 is convicted of first degree intentional homicide, a court has to impose the opportunity for release at some time but not sooner than 20 years after incarceration but as so if someone is an 18 year 17 year old and they're convicted of first-degree intentional homicide and the judge imposes life in prison as long as the judge says you are eligible for release in 70 years that sentence is legal in wisconsin although the defect, the effective result may be that the person will remain in prison for life. But as long as the sentence is given with the opportunity, the theoretical opportunity of release, it meets the constitutional standards set forth by the United States Supreme Court.
1: And I would add that in Wisconsin, at least, we have what's called a reverse waiver and waiver proceedings. So Juveniles that are accused of committing first-degree intentional homicide end up in adult court far more often than I think people understand they do. They're automatically sort of waived into adult court, and then we as the defense attorneys have the opportunity to try and put it back into juvenile court where, of course, the penalties would not be as long. Uh, However, my experience is a lot of the times we end up staying in adult court even if there are significant concerns about child development, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I do want to our my, my producer, Jade, helpfully has let me know that Newsweek did report that the Colorado ruling. Uh, does bar the Colorado Secretary of State from counting any write-in votes for Trump. So that actually does appear to have a much different effect, and, and that's good information to know, and I should have looked that up before I introduced the topic, but, you know, why be prepared? But, Sarah, I can tell you, you know, I work with young people, people under the age of 22 that are technically adults all the time, and and... Incarcerating very young people for 60, 70, 80 years, it doesn't make a lot of fiscal sense, it doesn't make a lot of common sense, and it certainly doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of what I view as equitable or just, but those are just my opinions as the softie who sits with these kids that
3: cry. My opinion, but I'm also concerned about adults being
1: <laughs> put in prison for yes. life with no possibility. No, I, I, this is a practice that in addition to being eat barbaric, eat doesn't fix night. things. No, uh,
3: it, it keeps me awake at night thinking about it. And I live in New York state and we do not have a death penalty either. And I've, I've been a, against it all my life. So, oh, thank you very much.
1: Absolutely. Bye. All right. We've got Mike yeah. who wants to talk about COVID. People are calling in by dialing 608 256 2001, extension nine. You can hit us up on Twitter at Wart Talk, W O R T Talk. I'm Jessica Nicholson Gets. This is, he's joining me as Mike Cohen, and we're just doing Legal Roundup 2023, talking about current events. Mike, I understand you want to talk about COVID. What's going on?
0: Yeah. Say, um, so it's it's been made abundantly clear that if you want to be protected from COVID, you need to get the new uh, the new J1N1 uh, vaccine for the current variant. Yet, even though it's been available since September, only 18% of the adult population in the United States has gotten the COVID vaccine and it's, it's, I don't know how anything could be more easily to get. I mean, every time you go to a drugstore or a doctor's office, they're trying to get you to take it. So basically, 82% of the population now, I guess we can call them anti-vax, <laughs> as they have not gotten this uh, new vaccine to protect themselves. Yet, multiple times on ward in the past couple of weeks, I've heard your guests laughing at anti-vaxxers who are now, like I said, 82%. In fact, children six months of age and older were supposed to get this vaccine, and only 7% of their parents have allowed their children to wow. get this. So that means 93%. Um, so they're the majority. I would like to see wart after four years of misinformation, start expressing the views of the majority here. Um, So thanks for listening.
1: No, and Mike, a couple of things. Let me ask you, number one, you were citing statistics that I think are powerful. Can you provide us with a source for those? Because I think that those are interesting. I, I think those are numbers that are relevant. And so I'd like to know where those came from.
0: Yeah, I got it from the CDC tracker uh, pretty, CDC, pretty good source, but, Mike. Pretty good source, CDC. And, uh, and the, they're not updating the latest one. The latest uh, information they have is from the last year's bivalent vaccine, which was available for nine months, and only 17% of U.S. adults took it. So yet you think that the people who aren't taken it are stupid, but when there's such a vast majority, again I heard your two of your hosts last week laughing at anti-vaxxers, and I was just like, God, you guys don't get it. <laughs> like no, and I and I
1: certainly really can't can't speak for now. can't speak for the views of every uh, host here at Ward. I think that there's a wide collection of people's beliefs. Uh, What I can say about this is I I would personally so I'm not going to take a position for the totality of work because I don't even work here. I'm just here filling in. So I don't think they're going to let me take one, Uh, but I, I wouldn't even if I could. I will say this, though. I do agree with you that using the broad term anti-vaxxer to describe people's hesitancy to get some of these boosters does feel like it's casting a very wide net. Because I personally, and this is anecdotal, I've spoken to a number of people who I think are educated, pro-science, thoughtful people who have been persuaded that these booster shots don't offer the protection that they thought the original vaccine would. Again, I'm not commenting on where their sources are coming from or or this, but I, I know there are a number of people and it sounds like your stats support that view that are going, yeah, we just aren't buying that we need this. And many of those people in my own life uh, have vaccinations for virtually everything else and obtained both the first round of COVID vaccines and at least one set of boosters. So I would draw that distinction insofar as my anecdotal experiences there are people that are refusing this vaccine that haven't refused past ones and i don't know if i think that those are people that fairly fall into a category of anti-vax when they're making an individualized healthcare decision about one versus making a statement about everything i don't know mike that's not the caller but is our our guest host with me do you have thoughts about that
2: um i think you know I, I tend to be – I don't make rash conclusions. I mean if somebody says to me I don't get vaccines at all for whatever their own personal reasons are, religious or otherwise, I guess you could put them in an anti – quote-unquote anti-vaxxer box. But I if you choose not to get a, a particular vaccine for some reason or – You've gotten one and not the other. Um, I I don't know that I'm willing to call somebody an anti-vaxxer. I I agree with you that there are reasons why some people, I mean, I know people like you, Jessa, that they got the first two or three or even four COVID uh, vaccines and um, didn't get the most recent one. Um, And there are some that, you know, I I tend to get them all, but I get them because my my children have asked that I get it to make sure that when I'm around my grandson, you know, there's just as much protection as possible. Right. And so I do it because I've been requested to do so. I don't know if I would necessarily get the vaccine um, all the time, but the flip side is, you know, I'm getting older. I get the flu vaccine now, you know, it's as easy to go to the pharmacy and get, the left arm, the flu vaccine, and the right arm, the COVID, and out the door you go. Um, and so I I probably will continue to do that as I get older, just because I think as you get older, you need to be careful of those things more maybe than when you were younger. Um, but I agree with your caller that um, a, a lot of people don't seem to be getting it. I think it could be for a number of reasons. One of the reasons could be um, it hasn't been that well publicized, Uh, you know, it hasn't been made the same news story, frontline coverage the way that it was in 2020 2021
1: well you also don't have to produce proof of your vaccination to get into a concert or restaurant or live yeah. your daily life anymore and there was a period of time where you did and right. so we could have a whole debate about if that was the government compelling certain actions for somebody or not and and i'm not necessarily staking a claim on that debate but i do think that it's notable that there's no restriction in where people are entering now and so it's left much more up to the, that sort of individual. I think there were some people that felt pressured to get the first round of vaccines, whether they, they were comfortable with it or not. And again, I mean, I did. So like I was. Um, and, and, but I'm speaking with a, a certain degree of respect and deference here because I try to be politically consistent. And to me, I think people's health care is their private business. That I, I, That's I mean, I hold that position on choice and I hold it on everything else is I think that what you decide to do with your doctor for your health is primarily something that I should stay out of. And so I certainly am not interested in participating and shaming people that make different decisions for their health than I do. I mean, I also drink alcohol and there are plenty of people that would tell you I shouldn't do that. And so I think, you know, I'm not going to police it, but. I do think that I agree with you, Mike, that I haven't seen the promotion on why this most recent booster makes as much, you know, like the first year I remember the commercials about why the booster was so important. I don't personally see them now. I have a two and a half year old and a one and a half year old. So the amount of commercials I'm, uh, you know, taking in these days is limited because we watch a lot of Melon on YouTube. So (laughs) I, I might not be the best observer I, I would note that we are, so I don't know, folks, are you getting the most recent COVID vaccine? Wart 89.9 FM, 608-256-2001 to call in and, and talk to us about it. Uh, th- thank you, COVID Mike, is I guess what I'll call you for calling in. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, Mike Cohen, on my list of legal roundup things, I did want to talk about, uh, and again, not so much if you think that the answer was right or wrong, but Rudy Giuliani, our friend that we mentioned at the top of the hour, recently got a pretty adverse verdict uh, to the tune of, what, 146000000 million, 100 $100-something yeah, million. million? Right, yeah. And I know you and I had a conversation just between the two of us that were like, so let's start with, does this guy have that kind of money? <laughs> and I think we both came to the conclusion, well, clearly he doesn't. So well, sure. Well, you know, we know the
2: answer to that question now because he just filed bankruptcy last week.
1: Correct. And that was the most predictable move on earth, right? I mean, sure. no one – I can't think anyone with any legal training whatsoever was surprised to see a bankruptcy filing, filing from him. <laughs> and so yeah. I think what I'm interested in is given that that verdict is very clearly symbolic, right – these poor women are never going to receive that amount of money and we know lawyers would take a bunch of it anyway and we know that there's going to be an appeal process and et cetera, et cetera. Is there value in the symbolism of a verdict like that? If so, what do we, you know, if so, what is that? And if not, why are we doing this? I guess those are my questions for you. Well,
2: um, first, let me say that again I don't I don't generally talk about law cases of of which I don't know all the details and the facts and so I have to preface my comments by saying I only know about the Ruly Giuliani situation to the extent that it's been put out in the general national media Um, I didn't ever go and read the filings or look at the information in detail to know exactly the specific allegations but to the extent that um there were some findings by a jury and awards made by a jury, then one has to suppose that whatever the allegations were, were proven to the requisite burden in that particular state under the law, right? Okay, so we have the, we have the verdict. The question is, as you pointed out, anybody in this business saw what the bankruptcy filing coming. Um, and so the question really is, well, you have to assume that the plaintiff's lawyers told their clients you're not going to get any money right i think that everybody knew that from the beginning this was never about some payout because right. giuliani i mean we all know he didn't have any money for his own Lulu bills. he was having <laughs> trump pay his bills he hasn't have any money anyway um, and so we knew that was, this was all a, a, in a sense a show and so the question became as you po- pointed out what is the reason for that Is there a reason for that, at least in today's society? My answer is it depends on the case. It depends on the issue. Do I personally believe that there was a value to to the plaintiffs bringing this case against this defendant given everything that's already out in the media and in society and in our news about this whole situation of which Giuliani was a part? No, I don't think it was necessary because they didn't bring to the forefront of the, 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 the media, to the news, to, 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 to the common knowledge of the American citizen, information that all, all, already wasn't already known. And so if they were using it to educate, there wasn't a purpose for that. So the only reason is it must have been for them personally. They wanted the message just for themselves, for personal vindication. They wanted a jury to tell them that they weren't, you know, they weren't wrong in their thoughts, that they were heard, that they're being, that their voice is respected. If that was the purpose for which they brought it, then I support them for that. Because, because I think just like we talked about freedom of choice for healthcare or other things, I think we as citizens have the right. To make decisions for what's important for ourselves about certain things and it's it's just common human respect
1: so So we've only got a, a few minutes left we're wrapping no more calls for today we we really appreciate everybody chatting with us i guess what i would say to that mike is i generally agree with you that sometimes The you know, if practically you're not going to recover a judgment, it becomes a principle of the thing case. And I'm not sure that I like principle of the thing cases as a lawyer. Right. I will say that there may have been a very sincere hope that regrettably didn't happen here, which is they may have pursued this because they wanted him to stop doing it again. And there there may have been a crazy idea that when you have court orders that tell you not to do something and you receive massive sanctions for having done that thing, that maybe you wouldn't stand on the courthouse steps like the same day you receive those sanctions and do it again. And I think that, you know, a lot of people would come to the conclusion that being in serious legal trouble, whether it be criminal or civil. Uh, would cause you to consider altering that behavior. And so that clearly didn't happen. How predictable it was that that didn't happen, I think, is a matter of debate. But I, I do think that there's a, you know, the idea that you'd get some injunctive relief to stop the defamation is appealing if it works. It's just there are limits to what works apparently there are some people that refuse to be governed like i mean i guess i don't know how else to say that (laughs) it would have worked in
2: a normal society (laughs) yes perhaps four years ago
1: yeah maybe six years ago ten years ago that might have been i think
2: i think that when actions are modeled by others that have a voice that is listened to rightly or wrongly People become emboldened to follow.
1: Yep. And sort of the last thing I'll say about that is there are some threads that we see in the Trump civil trial and the Giuliani civil trial that I think are important, which are both individuals refused to participate with discovery. And so a lot of the judgments there are in default in some capacity because the defense simply said, we're not going to play. And so and in fact, Giuliani, they actually promised his testimony in the lawyer's opening statement. And ultimately, he did not testify. And my personal belief, having watched that, is because his counsel was concerned he was going to commit more acts of defamation live on the witness stand and had to prevent that from happening. But I think that it's notable that what you have is a public discussion So you've got defendants that are making statements in public that they are unwilling to make under oath and they're unwilling to even comport with the process to get to the point where they're making substantive under oath statements. And so that is, to me, the thing I would flag as a concern going into 2024 in that I'm rooting for 2024 to be the year of process. I'm Jessa. Mike's been with me. This is Ward 89.9 FM, a public affair. Thanks so much for listening. Happy holidays and happy new year, folks.
0: Media distorted, we come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that will never be reported. of the mainstream.